Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and to those not part of the LSE community, welcome to the LSE. And we are delighted this evening to have former Prime Minister John Major with us, and he will be interviewed by Eleanor Goodman, who was for many years political editor of Channel 4 News and therefore a professional at this sort of thing. And tonight's event is jointly with the Hansard Society, with whom we at the school have a very close relationship. I'm particularly pleased that John is here this evening. Um, he and I have known each other for a long time. Indeed, I was thinking back to the first time we met, and it was in 1985. In February of 85, I was asked by Nigel Lawson uh, to go back into the Treasury, which I'd been an official in, to be his special advisor for a year. Um, and because Michael Portillo had been, <coughs> and he had lost him uh, to the Parliament. And the day I arrived, um, we met in the morning, the ministers and the special advisers, and John, who at that time was Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Chancellor. And Nigel said, well, how are things? And John said, well, the pound is a dollar three, um, and the mood on the back benches is mutinous. They wonder what will happen when it goes below one. Some of them think that there won't be a pound anymore, he said. And uh, this was uh, my introduction uh, to the Treasury and also my introduction uh, to John, <coughs> whose plain speaking about politics uh, impressed me hugely at the time uh, and has done ever since. But we're more interested in hearing from him than from me. So with no more ado, I hand over to Eleanor and we look forward to a fascinating exchange. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I would like to say that I've known John for actually since 1979 when we both came into Parliament at roughly the same time and I was loitering in the lobby and he was going past. Um, so that, that's how long our relationship goes back. But I just want to say that somewhere in this room there is a mobile phone on, I think, and if you think it could be yours, could you please turn it off? Because I heard something. So everyone have a quick you know, check and change. <coughs> because it's, Anyway... Um, I'm delighted to be talking to John Major today because, of course, it's not just 10 years since Tony Blair was elected, it's 10 years since John Major uh, left office. And while everyone is writing the first draft of uh, Tony Blair's legacy, it's now possible to look with the benefit of some hindsight at John Major's. Uh, and it's easy to forget in all the fuss about Tony Blair wanting to go longer than Mrs. Thatcher's time in Downing Street that John Major himself did six and a half years, which in historical terms, as he would no doubt once have said, was not an inconsiderable amount of time. Um, yet when I went to look for a book, a particular book, to mug up on the era um, at Politico's or at its renamed uh, state, uh, it was as if his premiership had been obliterated between the two bookends of uh, Tony Blair's and um, Mrs. Thatcher's. Yet as prime ministers, he laid the foundations of the Northern Ireland peace agreement and I have to say that some of the pieces I watched on television reporting the final stage of that conspicuously failed to mention that. He also, argue, arguably, and I suspect he would argue, uh, along with Ken Clark, laid the foundations of the rather benign economic conditions which uh, Gordon Brown inherited. And, of course, there were other things like the lottery. Now, as this event is being partially sponsored by the Hansard Society, our 
emphasis and interest is particularly on promoting uh, democracy, looking at the, the interface between Parliament and uh, the executive. But uh, since it is 10 years, and I know you hate talking about yourself unless things have changed a lot, uh, can I begin uh, by saying, with the benefit of uh, 10 years <coughs> of attachment, how do you think we should view your legacy? Uh, well, as you say, I dislike talking about that very much, about myself. But you did write a book about it. But I did write a book. <laughs> still available. Uh, <laughs> if you can find it. At all, still available at all good bookstores. Um, I think there are several things that stand out. I won't bore you with a long, tedious list of tiddly things. But I think the two big things... I remember the day I walked into Downing Street. We had interest rates at 14%. Inflation was coming up to double figures and unemployment was beginning to go through the roof. And, of course, that continued for a while. When I left, uh, we'd had continuous growth for over five years. Uh, we had uh, unemployment on a sharply downward scale. We had interest rates down to uh, 5 or 6%. And I think most people realize we'd not only outperformed the rest of Europe for the last four or five years, but that we'd produced one of the most benign economic environments that any government had inherited probably at any time in the last century. And I think that is often overlooked. Uh, Gordon Brown often claims credit for the economy, and he deserves some, and maybe we'll turn to him and what he doesn't deserve later. But uh, his note of thanks for the economy somehow got lost in the post. <laughs> if only we had managed to privatise it, it would probably have got there, but alas, it didn't. So I think the, so the economy is the first thing. And, and, of course, you touched on the Northern Ireland uh, the Northern Ireland situation. That was very grisly in 1990. We were still facing an awful lot of violence. And uh, we began that. I began that with uh, Albert Reynolds, the Irish Prime Minister. We produced the Downing Street Agreement. And perhaps in terms of the future, equally important, the Frameworks Agreement. Because I didn't see a lot of this in 1997-8. But the Frameworks Agreement was actually 90% of the basis of the Downing Street Agreement that Tony Blair reached after he got into office. He built and was generous enough to acknowledge that he built on what I actually left behind. But if you read the agreement that he signed at the time, the vast majority of it was the uh, framework agreement that I had agreed with John Bruton in the middle of the 1990s. So I think those are the two biggest things. I, I talk of the lottery only with a sinking heart because it's been the subject of grand larceny by the government year after year. Uh, ever since. It was intended for the grassroots of sport and the grassroots of the arts. It was intended for that for one very clear-cut uh, reason. It seems to me that there are millions of people in this country with no particular income for whom the arts and the sport and sport are a material part of their lives. And the purpose of the lottery was to improve their lives by making both of those things more available to them, not just at the top level, but at grassroots level. So they shouldn't be splundering it for the uh, Olympics? Well, well, I think it's legitimate to take some of it for the Olympics. I think they're taking too much. But they have plundered it for all sorts of things that really ought to have been government expenditure borne by the taxpayer. And the people who've lost are the villages who don't get their village halls, don't get their village football matches, don't get their village uh, swimming pools or netball matches. They're the people who've lost. And the small arts companies up and down the country... And that actually matters because we still have a society in this country for all the improvements that have been over the last 30 years, for all the improvements that have been, 
there are vast numbers of people in this country who live on marginal incomes for whom those sort of facilities are important. And I understand those people because I come from those people. I come from the people who fall down the gaps in the system. Uh, it caused much hilarity amongst some of your colleagues that I did, but I did. And I care about those people. And I think the way that lottery has been abused is an absolute scandal in the last few years. In a sense, when you say you care about those people, presumably those are the kind of people that Tony Blair would say he cared about too. Well, I'm sure he does, but there's two aspects of caring. One is talking about it, and the other is doing something about it. <laughs> and uh, I would Perhaps claim... Credits, he would say? I, well, I, well, I think you could ask tax, about how successful tax credits have been. I wonder how many people you know who've had tax credits practically forced on them by the, uh, uh, by the local revenue and others who are now being asked to pay it back because they made a mistake. No doubt the mistake was made by government... There's no doubt the bill is being repaid by people on modest incomes, by definition on modest incomes, or they wouldn't have had the tax credits, who now found, find they were given to them mistakenly, even though they provided accurate information to the government, who are now asked to repay them. And even though I'm not, no longer in politics, I still get letters, uh, from rather a lot of letters actually, uh, from all sorts of people. And I can tell you this is a very big subliminal problem for many, many people. Just briefly, what would you say you did in government for those, your people, as you say, see them? Uh, I would think there'd be a material, a, a series of things that we actually did. Firstly, if you looked at the changes at the bottom end of the tax scale. Secondly, if you looked at um, the way in which we directed government expenditure to those areas where you had a high proportion of people who were on relatively modest incomes. They were two of the things that we did uh, quite deliberately. And although this doesn't relate to those people directly, even at times when, because of the economy, it was necessary to retrench on government expenditure, we didn't retrench in areas like uh, overseas aid, where there are people in a far worse position than those I'm talking of abroad. And I think it's quite interesting that if you actually look at the figures of the relationship between those at the bottom of the uh, uh, income scale and those higher up, the people did better at the bottom of the income scale during the period of the 1990s, relatively speaking, than those higher up the income scale had done either before or afterwards. So you were a redistributionist? Up to a point. A closet redistributionist? To, well, I was a closet redistributionist up to a point. I don't think you can redistribute to the extent of destroying the wealth-making machinery itself but I do think there is a desirability for some measure of redistribution. There was, and there still is. And you certainly haven't heard me complain over areas of redistribution in the last 10 years. Uh, where I do complain is where the redistribution is in the wrong direction. The last budget springs immediately to mind. And I do complain, of course, when uh, the redistribution is actually at the expense of taxation that damages the wealth-making process itself and does no good to anyone. From what you've said, you obviously did do get some satisfaction looking back on some of your achievements. But when I was rereading re your biography, I was just struck by how you were buffeted from one crisis to another. And I remember reporting them at the time, feeling slightly seasick for you. 
It was very kind of you. I so recall all those generous pieces you wrote. I did. Right. You've got the wrong journalist there. I was on television. Did you actually enjoy your time in Downing Street, or was it basically unalloyed hell? No, I enjoyed a large part of it. Some of it was unalloyed hell, that's certainly true, but not all of it. Not all of it, by any means. Many of the people you worked with, I don't necessarily mean politicians, some of the politicians I worked with were superb and remained very close friends. Some were perhaps less than optimal. Some were Uh, bastards, I remember. (laughs) I can't recall whether that ever slipped from my mind. (laughs) But I may have mentioned that in a private moment somewhere. Um, But yes, there was a great deal of it I enjoyed. But there are some bits, of course, you can't possibly enjoy. But I don't think you're really in politics for the enjoyment. You came to the job from having been Chancellor and briefly Foreign Secretary. You didn't have time, really, to draw up a manifesto for government because presumably you didn't expect it to happen so soon. How prepared were you for it? I was unprepared. I mean, I became uh, Foreign Secretary to my surprise and everybody else's. It was neither a job I sought nor expected. Uh, Contrary to subsequent legend, I was just beginning to enjoy it when after my tenure of a modest 94 days, I was moved on to the Treasury. And I have to to tell you now, the Foreign Office looked back on those 94 days as a golden age. We... uh, We invaded no one. (laughs) We were were at peace with the world and all was uh, tranquil. And uh, it's a very great regret to me now that I didn't spend longer at the Foreign Office. And when Margaret asked me to move from the Foreign Office back to uh, the Treasury, I was very reluctant. I was very reluctant because I realised how it would be perceived. And I realised that it certainly wasn't in my interest to do so, and I didn't think it was particularly in the interest of the Conservative Party to do so. Did they but, condescend but was, to you when you were there? Was, hmm? Did they condescend to you when you were there? Because sort of the mythology is that you had a horrible time at the Foreign Office because they condescended to you because Absolute you couldn't speak rubbish. French or whatever. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> well, there's a large number of the Foreign Office who don't speak French, I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, a lot that do, and Chinese and Russian and all sorts of other things. No, that is absolutely untrue. Um, I began to enjoy my time at the Foreign Office enormously. And one of the things I look back in regret on is that I didn't spend a longer time there. I now spend four months of the year traveling around the world. And uh, because I don't have a reputation of going out to a microphone and talking about what I've just heard, I tend to meet uh, heads of government, uh, senior politicians, and heads of business in almost every country around the world. And it's curious that life is lived the wrong way around. I know a good deal more about the world today than I ever did when I was in government, either as Foreign Secretary, Chancellor, or Prime Minister. So I, I wish I'd had more time for preparation, but I genuinely regret that I didn't spend longer at the Foreign Office. How much of a culture shock do you think Gordon Brown will find making the transition from Chancellor to Prime Minister? Well, I ought to say at the outset, I don't know Gordon Brown very well. I'm not one of the five people who do. (laughs) Um, So it's quite difficult to actually uh, make that judgment. But I think he will find it very different. I mean, here you have a Chancellor, and here I must rely on your friends in the media for what he's like, but I don't really know. But here, here you have a Chancellor who appears to operate within a very tight, close-knit group of colleagues, excluding a large number of officials. 
and who seems, seems to have a more than vengeful attitude upon those people who aren't amongst the four or five people to whom he is very close. Well, he is now going to government, where he will have to peacemake between departments, not on a daily, but on an hourly basis. He will have to switch his mind, not from a deep concentration on Treasury matters, but at 10 o'clock he's talking about foreign affairs, at 11 o'clock he's talking about overseas aid, at 12 o'clock he's talking about uh, something to do with the Treasury, at 1 o'clock he's in the middle of health, and by 2 o'clock he's talking about education, or education, 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 as we now know. <laughs> so he will find himself moving around and having to keep peace. And whereas, as the number two, as the Chancellor, you can say, I'm going to do this and leave the Prime Minister to sort out the mess, when you're Prime Minister, you find you have to sort out the mess, and it is a different set of skills that he will need from those he's had at the, uh, at the Treasury. When you got to Downing Street, you wanted to change the atmosphere within the Cabinet and have a much more consensual Cabinet. Do you think it is possible to combine strong collective decision-making with uh, that more consensual style because it became to be perceived as weakness when you yes. did it. Well, of course, everything is taken to one extreme or the other. I remember when Margaret Thatcher was there, it was said that she just overruled the cabinet and uh, she always got her own way. Well, unlike uh, most people who say that, I sat in her cabinet and it emphatically wasn't true. She didn't always get her own way and many of the things that are perceived as being particularly Margaret weren't her. She came to support them. Privatisation was very much a push, not by Margaret, but by Nigel Lawson and by Geoffrey Howe. Uh, selling of council houses, that was really the policy of um, uh, those two arch wets, uh, um, Peter Walker and Michael Heseltine. And Margaret came to support those. And because she was the Prime Minister, she got the blame when things got, went wrong and the credit when they went right. But the belief that she overrode everybody in the cabinet and they, they bowed the knee to every wish she had is a fallacy. It is a fantasy. But then, of course, if you move to the other extent where you believe, as I do believe, in genuine cabinet government in which you collect the voices and then decide, that is perceived as weakness. Now, I come from a very old-fashioned school of thinking, I think it is desirable to hear the arguments before you make the decision. I know that's very old-fashioned, and it doesn't much appeal to what once we called Fleet Street, but I think it is actually uh, a very good thing to do that, to draw in the wisdom of people, to hear where the sensitivities are, to hear what the uh, concerns are, and then make a decision. Did Was that decision always a majority decision? No, on Northern Ireland it wasn't. It certainly wasn't. At no stage in the Cabinet did I have a majority for my Northern Irish position. At no stage. But Cabinet tends not to be formal votes, except on issues of huge, uh, uh, of huge current import, where feelings are running very high. Then sometimes you have to go round the cabinet table taking a formal vote. But by and large, the Prime Minister introduces the subject, steers the discussion, and draws it to a conclusion, takes the voices, and uh, decides what to do. And if people then wish to object and say, no, Prime Minister, I don't agree with that, they have the right to do so. And usually they don't. Uh, that's not because of their weak need. It's because there is a fraternal element in a good cabinet, and by and large, they will give the minister responsible for something a good deal of leeway in their subject, 
or the Prime Minister, and they did that. On, they did that to me on Northern Ireland, though I was always conscious of the orange wing of the cabinet looking over my shoulder, and I was always conscious of the sceptical wing of my cabinet, which I do not mean Eurosceptical, but the sceptics who thought that I was being taken for a ride by the IRA and that it would all end in tears. Those two wings of the cabinet were deeply unpersuaded of the uh, Irish policy. When Tony Blair came to power, I mean, the whole ethos of New Labour was they were going to repeat as they saw at your mistakes, and they were going to have far more central control. Mm. Looking at what they've done and how they managed in those first few years, do you ever envy them that grip on the machine? Well, I've seen where it has ended, so I think the answer to that is no. Um, I didn't envy Tony Blair many of his policies either, and why should I? Because they were my policies many years before they were his policies. Well, then uh, that's so a very I good didn't. reason for envying so him, being able to put them into action. But the way he uh, proceeded, without, in my judgment, proper cabinet government, from what I understand, from what we have come to know as SOFA government, has meant a large number of the things where his objective was clear and was my objective has not been properly carried into effect. His great mantra of education, education, education was absolutely right. It was right in principle and it caught the spirit of the times. It wasn't original. The first person to say that was Lenin in 1917 and he didn't do anything about it either. Um, but if there had been a proper cabinet decision-making machinery and if they had looked with care at what needed to be done, they might have made more of the improvements in the education system that they had both the cash and the parliamentary majority to make. So I don't think SOFA government is a good thing. Why have a cabinet if you are going to bypass it on all the important decisions? That's not the way our system works, and it's a bad system. But it, For it, all the deficiencies of cabinet, it is better to have a cabinet system and to take the voices of people who are actually responsible on a day-to-day -day basis for the individual departments than meet with two or three people without officials, ignoring official advice, and then decide you're going to do something that is uh, improperly thought out and uh, runs into the sand, which we have seen, I think, uh, repeatedly in the last few years. Do you say that because it locks in your cabinet colleagues so they can't then go out of the tent and piss back in. Well, they did. Uh, I mean, some of <laughs> no, them did. No, yours did. did. Yeah, some of them did. But are, or are you saying no. because you, get, be you be get better policy that way? As, as with all things, there's more than one element here. Um, my, the reason for doing it is because you get better policy. It is also a side effect of that that you do lock people more into the decision-making process than you would have done if they felt excluded from a decision that they thoroughly disapprove of. If you make a decision that somebody elsewhere in the cabinet thoroughly disapproves of and you've locked them entirely out of discussion or consideration or a voice, then they may feel more able to be difficult about that in private briefing or in public speeches or even in not staying in the government. So I think it is a good thing to lock people in, but it would be cynical to suggest that that is the reason for actually having cabinet government and making your decisions that way. The reason for making the decisions that way is because I judge you get better decisions and more democratic decisions because you have presumably in your cabinet people representing every or almost every strand of opinion in your own political party. 
obviously that won't, when the world outside became aware of sofa government was over Iraq, you supported <coughs> the war. Did you, I mean, can you understand how Tony Blair could have got the intelligence so wrong? Do you think it was a deliberate misuse of intelligence or a misunderstanding of it? Well, I must be very careful here because I can't be certain. I can only tell you I was Prime Minister during the first Iraq war. And whenever I said anything about Iraq, if I said about Iraq A, B and C, I only said it when I was absolutely rock-solid certain of A, B and C and also knew D, E and F. I always said less than I knew and only what I was absolutely confident of. And I supported the government's position on Iraq because I assumed that was a principle that still applied. It emerges subsequently that when Tony said A, B and C, he wasn't certain of A, B and C, and he certainly didn't know D, E and F. Um, I realized something was wrong. That famous weekend when there were so many stories about Saddam Hussein having a missile that would hit us in 45 minutes, I knew that he could not and did not, and that was untrue. And I waited the whole weekend for How Downing you know Street. That? Well, because I did used to get a lot of security briefings during the period I was there, and I had some after I was there as well. So you've and seen I sought the same some intelligence that he was making that assessment on? Oh, but years out of date. Mm. Years out of date. Uh, but it was inconceivable in that period uh, that Saddam Hussein, that, that Iraq had moved on to have a missile capable of hitting the United Kingdom in 45 minutes from Iraq. And I waited, I think it was a Thursday or a Friday, that became, uh, that became a great issue, just before an important parliamentary vote, I think, by chance. And uh, I waited the whole weekend for Downing Street to correct that story, which I knew to be wrong. And they didn't correct that story, which I knew to be wrong. And uh, from then onwards, I looked with a much more skeptical eye at everything that was said about Iraq. But let me add one further point. I do not know what information was on the Prime Minister's desk when he made his decisions. Let me make that perfectly clear. I do not know whether there was information that he knew that for a perfectly sound national reason nobody else knew with the possible exception of the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary. So everything I say, I say with that caveat. There may may have been something that I didn't know that persuaded him to speak as he did. He still stands by the decision to go to war. Do you still think it was the right one or would you go with the majority now? I think it is very questionable whether it was the right one. But I don't think you will know whether this was the right decision for 10 years or more, maybe 20 years. If at some date in the future you have a mature democratic Iraq in the midst of a Middle East moving closer towards democracy, then people may look back in 10 or 20 years and say this was very wise and far-sighted, and it changed the whole nature of the Middle East. That could happen. Alternatively, if the Middle East dissolves into chaos, if uh, there is a civil war in Iraq, if Iraq dissolves into having uh, an Islamic government, uh, then I think people will take a very different view. To a point, there is always a hazard in the game of war, in that you can never be entirely sure how it will turn out in the long term. And I don't think a proper judgment can be made 
until that uh, long term has expired. As you see in that first uh, Gulf War, which was one of the first things mm. you had to deal with in government, you obviously had to work with George Bush Sr. Mm. Is your experience of that Anglo-American <coughs> relationship always that Britain is very much the junior partner and all you can hope to do is tweak the decisions. You can't really expect to have a major influence on them. Well, they are obviously the larger partner. Their military strength is a multiple of ours. That is self-evidently so. Um, but in terms of the way George Bush Sr. worked, I cannot answer for how the present president works. Uh, he was meticulous in consultation in every respect, both at his level and, uh, and through Colin Powell, who was then the chief of staff. And I saw a lot of both of them. I spoke to George Bush Sr. almost on a daily basis. He was very frank. And I remember, to give you an illustration of the relationship, I remember the first time uh, I sat in on a meeting between our most senior military figures and America's most senior military figures. And I expected the sort of dancing around the point that you often get when people have secrets to hide and military positions to preserve. There was none of that. There was a degree of frankness between the senior military people unlike anything I had come to expect. They were wholly frank, and it was perfectly clear that the Americans at the time regarded the British as absolutely key allies, and more important, key allies with whom they had a total relationship of trust. And I'm not going to repeat to you what they said, because some of it would still not be wise to repeat. But it was astonishing. But do you the degree of frankness they have. And in my experience, George Bush was just as frank with me. And do you think he actually changed what he did because of what you said at any point? Well, I don't think there was any difference between us as to what needed to be done. Uh, we were both uh, agreed as to the date at which we should start. We were both agreed uh, on the uh, point of international law under which we went to war. We went to war under a United Nations resolution. And, of course, we went to war with the widest coalition the world has seen since the Second World War, involving many Arab nations. And that coalition, under that uh, United Nations resolution, had a specific remit. And that remit was to expel the Iraqis from Kuwait. It was not to go into Baghdad, destroy Baghdad, and kill Saddam and Hussein. Do you, do you still think you were right to stand by that limited remit rather than to well, push on? Did consider, you never say? Consider if we hadn't. If we hadn't, we would firstly never have got the coalition we did involving many Arabs turning for the first time against a pariah state. If we had gone on, all the Arab members of that coalition would have deserted that coalition. America and Britain would have gone to war under the guise of international law and would have ended the war breaking international law. We would have won the war and lost the peace. And I would ask you one other question. If George Bush and I had given those assurances to bring the Arabs into the coalition and others, and then we had broken our word when the war was effectively won and the mission was completed, <coughs> How many decades would it be before anybody would again trust an American president or a British prime minister? And I think we were absolutely right to gather that coalition. It was the first time the world had turned on a terror state in that fashion. And we were absolutely right to abide by international law when we did so. 
because the long-term implications for America and Britain of not having done so would, I think, have been profound. So I have no regrets about that. Iraq arguably did for Tony Blair's reputation what ERM did for you. Uh, rereading again your, uh, your biography, which was written, uh, what was it, two or three years after you left off office? Your autobiography. About that. You said at that point that you didn't regret going in because you thought it was a, 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 the best way to control inflation. And you've never apologized for it. Do you still not feel the need to? No, I, mean, I don't. The exchange rate mechanism, we went into the, there are so many myths about the exchange rate mechanism. We went into the exchange rate mechanism when inflation was going through the roof, when unemployment uh, was rising, when the economy was collapsing, and when people were very worried that sterling was going to collapse even further, pushing interest rates up even higher. The second, that, that, that is the reason we went in we had run out of any other credible option to deal with the economic circumstances that existed in that inflationary period. The second myth is that Margaret Thatcher was dragged into it by those two wicked men, Heard and Major. Well, it's a rather odd myth that the Iron Lady, who always did exactly what she was supposed to have done, was dragged into it by a, a brand-new Chancellor who'd been there just a few weeks and by a mild-mannered Douglas. So that is a nonsense when we actually went into the exchange rate mechanism, Margaret, although she had previously been opposed to it, was as supportive of going in as we were. Not only was she supportive of going in, she actually wished to go in at a more punitive rate than the rate at which we went in. We went in from memory at 290, to the, uh, 290 Deutschmarks to the pound. Margaret wanted to go in at a more punitive rate for that for a very good reason because her fear was inflation and she wished to crush inflation and she wished to do that for a very good reason because inflation would push up interest rates on people's mortgages because inflation is a disproportionate tax upon the poor and all these people who are now so wise after the event who were not at the time I remember many of those journalists who excoriated us later were excoriating us earlier for not having gone into the exchange rate uh, mechanism. All those uh, people at the time forget why we went in. It was to kill inflation. Let me finish. And I would argue that we did kill inflation. We haven't had an inflationary spiral since that time. Yes, it was painful, but would we have had the benign economic environment we have now had for the last 15 years if we had not killed inflation in the early 1990s. Now, you used to write for the Financial Times before you w w w uh, went into television, and I think you will know that inflation was the core problem for the British economy for a very long time, I used to get and we were determined to kill it. I used to live in a family that knew what it was like when the money ran out before the end of the week. That's what inflation means, when the bill comes around on Friday and the money has gone by Thursday. So I hated inflation and I was prepared to take political risks to curb it. And that is what the exchange rate mechanism was about. You, you might have been right to join it, but surely you would have to accept that it was a very ignominious position for the British government when, it, when you had to pull out. And isn't there a case for saying that because neither you nor Norman Lamont resigned, 
that added to the scepticism about yes, politicians. Yes, no, that's right. Um, I was very close to resigning. Um, I had written a letter of resignation and a broadcast of resignation. And I was never sure that I should not have resigned. I was talked out of resigning by a number of senior civil servants and by a number of senior cabinet colleagues who said, we have only just had an election. You were the reason we won that election. If you walk on as, out on us now when we're in really dire difficulties, we are not sure how we will hold the Conservative Party together. And I reluctantly decided to stay. And people may be cynical and say, oh, yes, well, of course, very convenient. You've got advice and you stayed. Of course they can say that. But it happens not to be true. And I had never been sure to this moment whether it was the right decision to stay or whether it would have been the right decision to go. I was very close to going because I had been the Chancellor when we went in the exchange rate mechanism. I was the Prime Minister when we came out. And I understood very plainly the night it happened that it meant we would never go back into the exchange rate mechanism. We would never go into a single currency and that our reputation over economic management, even though we would get the economy right, would be in severe danger for many years. Now, we did get the economy right. People write subsequently, well, the Tories lost their reputation for economic competence then. Fair enough. I would have thought, having produced five years later the best economy any government, incoming government had inherited in the last century, that some people might have considered we had regained our reputation for economic competence. But, of course, that is too subtle. And uh, the remarks about uh, the uh, Black Wednesday and the ERM remained. The other point, of course, is uh, very few people have either understood or even considered the complex series of events that came together to form that perfect storm on the day we were forced out of the ERM. It wasn't just a piece of economic uh, mismanagement. A series of events, quite unprecedented, came together to uh, form that, as you may remember. I'll elaborate on them if you wish. But it was not just a mistake in judgment. And I suppose the one other point to make, the great beneficiary from us coming out of the ERM was the Labour Party. The people who were most keen to advocate that we joined were Neil Kinnock, Tony Blair, and Gordon Brown. And they all celebrated when we joined. They agreed at the rate upon which we joined. They were twitting us for months before we joined about why we were so slow to join. So there may be people who are in a position to criticize us and benefit from the fact that it was a failure of policy when we came out. But I'm not sure that the Labour Party are among them. You, you had to um, govern with a tiny majority, and after ERM it became a succession of nightmares, as we've alluded to, to earlier. And yet, uh, you have always been very critical of the idea of any kind of parliamentary constitutional reform. Do you think it was right that you could be held to ransom and essentially by a minority in the way you were? Um, well, it wasn't um, pleasant. Uh, but it is democracy. I mean... Might not there be a better kind of democracy? Well, I've not yet... Well, there might be. I don't think the first-past-the-post system is perfect. I don't think um, any form of proportional representation is perfect either. There, there are arguments both in favour and against both of those systems of government. But the, the particular problem we had in the early, 90, early 1990s 
isn't a series of problems that are easily repeated. For example, um, when we won the 1992 election, we had already been in government for 13 years. Consider the extent to which the public are bored at the moment with the government who's been there for 10 years. We had been there for 13 years. And secondly, we lost a lot of very senior members who were by large centrist Tories and gained a number of young Turks who were very hawkish on the neo-conservative wing of the Conservative Party who came into the Conservative Party. And we also had within the party, after 13 years in government, self-evidently, a very large number of ex-ministers. There is very little more difficult to deal with than an ex-minister. I think Tony Blair might and agree with you on that now. Well, he might, but not so much as Gordon Brown will, for he will have more of them. <laughs> and those ex-ministers are all perfectly well aware that in a just world, they would still be ministers, and probably ministers at a much more senior level. And it is only through malign fate and the wrong-sightedness of their political party that they were no longer there to serve the government. And, of course, they were men of great experience and women of great experience and wisdom. And they were not there to be told what to do by some new prime minister who just happened to have won an election with more votes than any government got before, since, or uh, at any other time in history. Uh, they were there to advance their own views, and they were not biddable. So we had a majority of 21 which on some issues from the start was a minority government. Bear that on Europe, we were a minority government from the first day. <coughs> on top of that, we had two groups who were wholly unbiddable. The young neoconservative and largely Eurosceptic Turks who came in replacing the uh, experienced, uh, elderly, middle-of-the-road Tory MPs who retired and this large block of ex-ministers who had served some time during Margaret's government or the early part of mine between 1992 and were no longer ministers. And, of course, they did get a little urging from beyond the parliamentary party by senior figures in politics that it was perfectly all right for them to rebel and be difficult. That senior now, figure has recently been immortalised in a large statue those, in the those lobby. Are, well, there was more than one figure. There was more, one figure, more than one figure. Um, and that was a very unusual set of circumstances that we've seen broadly twice before in history. In the 1840s over uh, uh, the Corn Laws and over tariff reform in the early part of the uh, 20th century. And these circumstances sometimes come together. I mean, if you look at political history, when governments have been in power for a very long time, maybe it is part of the democratic spirit of the British, I don't know. People think it is time for a change. Um, on the day after we won the 1992 election, I sat in the white room of the House of Commons on a sofa with Chris Patton. Uh, Chris uh, had been chairman of the Conservative Party, was pretty much my closest political friend, and had been chairman of the party who had delivered us the election victory, but had lost his seat in Bath. And we sat on the sofa, Chris and I, and we agreed that in winning a fourth successive election victory, we had stretched the democratic elastic further than it realistically ought to go. And I remember Chris saying very clearly um, when I said that, he said, I agree with you. You will never be given the benefit of the doubt again. And I think pretty much we weren't. 
and it would be extraordinarily difficult, we agreed, to win a fifth general election. Some of the people here present will remember the talk after the fourth general election that we were becoming a one-party state. So it was a pretty ungenerous atmosphere. And, of course, the European schisms were unprecedented in modern politics and did huge damage. Can I just ask you two last questions before I um, open this up to questions from the audience? Uh, you talk about the democratic elastic having stretched. Do you think it's now stretched too far for Labour as well, or do you think Gordon Brown will be able to... I don't think I can mix my metaphors on this. I'm going to give up on this particular metaphor. Well, I know it, what you mean, yes. You know what I mean. <laughs> yes. um, it's very difficult to say. It isn't impossible. Uh, but, of course, when I became Prime Minister in 1990, I was a face that nobody knew. It looked like a new government. Um, the last 10 years haven't been a Tony Blair government. It's been a Tony Blair-Gordon Brown government. So Gordon does start off from the disadvantage that he won't look like a new face. And he does also face the risk that he may face the sort of backlash from the strong Blairites uh, that, divide, that, that, that we had in a similar form that divided the Conservative Party in the 90s. I don't necessarily predict that will happen, but I think it is something he ought to be wary of. It certainly could happen. Um, Labour have been in government now for 10 years. When we won the 92 election, we've been in government for 13. So there was a slightly longer period, but I do think Labour may have some of that difficulties. And, of course, if I may again draw on a, an historical analogy, um, the three greatest election defeats of the last 150 years have all arisen when the government of the day has been in government for 10 years or more and then loses the election. 1906, 1945, and 1997. And the average loss of seats in the election that they lost, which for us could have been 92 but wasn't, but in the election that they lost, the average number of seats they lost was 185. So I think the Labour Party have reason to look carefully at what is going to happen. Difficult to predict. You never know the circumstances. They're never the same between elections. But they are beginning to get into an unpromising set of circumstances if you look at what has happened in the past. And do you think there is a, an additional problem now that the media wants change so much? I mean, this is my, the last area I very quickly want to touch on, is the one thing you might regret in government is the way you're perceived to have pandered to some of the media and that then they turn on you. Pandered? Well, I had a lousy relationship with the media. Why did you ring Absolute, up the editor of The Sun or The Daily lousy. Mail? I, I hear these stories with a great degree of astonishment. So did you never and ring I up the editor of The Sun? I think there's a great degree of exaggeration. I've heard those stories, and mostly they are exaggerated. You can always take a tiny pinpoint of truth and extend it to a great exaggeration. I have to tell you, it wasn't this Prime Minister who wandered around the world to bend the knee before News Corporation and make speeches to them. It wasn't this Prime Minister who wrote handwritten notes to one of our tabloids. It wasn't this Prime Minister who hands out individual stories to one particular tabloid to get their favour. It wasn't this Chancellor of Exchequer who has a relationship, who who has a relationship with the Daily said, Mail. Have I made, have it was this Prime Minister, to be rude and interrupt, uh, who allegedly rang up the editor of the Mail, or was, was it the Sun, to, to uh, say, have I gone too far after ERM? That is absolutely not true. Uh, did I speak to them? Yes. Did I say that? Emphatically not. Emphatically not. Last Is that clear enough? That's very clear. <laughs> and, uh, the last question just I wanted to ask you. Just thought I'd check. Just to, yeah, yeah. Last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, 
when you uh, left Downing Street, you very generously left a bottle of champagne in the fridge for Tony Blair. If you were leaving him a similar present now, what would be your message? <laughs> I think my message would be uh, to move on from politics. Uh, there's a lot of life left. He's still, well, by my lights, he's still a young man. Um, and there are plenty of other things, as I have discovered. There's, there is a life outside politics. He mustn't get bogged down spending the rest of his life thinking about what he did in politics and looking back at what he once was and what he once did. He'd be much wiser to look forward to what there is to do tomorrow, what else he can do with his life, and um, uh, get out of the party political impetus that all politicians are forced into uh, to a certain extent and, uh, uh, and become a citizen of the world and, and move on beyond politics. That, that would be my advice to him, but um, he hasn't yet asked for it. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Sir John, and um, I'd just like to throw uh, the throw to, to questions now for about 10 minutes. I'll, I can see one here and then some up the top there. So first here, the gentleman in the red tie, the yellow tie. Red and yellow tie, that sounds what? like a hostile start. <laughs> yeah. Could you give your names, please? So, uh, David Morgan. Uh, Sir John, From what advice would you give to an incoming Prime Minister who was following someone who was uh, larger than life as their predecessor? <laughs> uh, well, I, He's talking about Gordon Brown again. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that he is. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that he is. Um, I've often wondered about that. It is, uh, it is difficult to give advice to yourself, particularly with the benefit of hindsight. But I think in the benefit of hindsight, if there is one mistake I probably made from my own personal well-being, if there's one mistake I made more than any other, I put much too high a premium on keeping the Conservative Party together because when I became Prime Minister, on the day I became Prime Minister, the chance of the Conservative Party splitting was very real and it remained very real for a long time. And I subordinated a great deal of what I thought, what I believed in, and what I cared about in order to keep the Conservative Party together during those times of stress. I'm not sure that was right. I think I should perhaps have done more of the things I personally cared about and less about keeping the, par uh, the Parliamentary Party together. If I had, I think it would have given a different perception of me and it may have opened a different path of opportunity. It might, on the other hand, have split the Conservative Party. I can't be certain. But I am by instinct a team player, and I think in retrospect I put much too high a premium on keeping the party together. Uh, up there, the lady in black. If you could say who you are, please. Thank you. Um, Claire Levens. Um, to use your phraseology, is, is Mr. Cameron a young Turk, or is he uh, a bright new thing for the Conservative Party? Well, I think... Um, David Cameron sits in the middle of the Conservative Party, pretty much where I did. I mean, he may actually be marginally to the right of where I was. One of the problems that uh, I had, and it's relevant to what I'm going to say about David uh, Cameron, when I became uh, Prime Minister, I was very much a centrist by instinct. And you uh, uh, referred to my difficulties with the press. Well, from the point of view of a centrist Conservative... There was no natural media home. The left of centre press were clearly opposed because they were not conservative by instinct. And the conservative press 
was very much on the neoconservative wing of the Conservative Party. The part of conservatism, the strand of conservatism that I represented, was pretty much unrepresented in the early 90s in the media. And that wasn't, uh, that wasn't very helpful um, because you can't address uh, 30 million electors directly. I once remember joking that I would have made a 40-minute speech on education. Um, I would turn on the 6 o'clock news. It would be uh, it carried for a minute, followed by a minute of criticism from Tony Blair, who hadn't heard the speech, and a minute from Paddy Ashton, who hadn't understood the speech. <laughs> And that having no natural... That was unfair on Paddy. I mean, it, about, I withdraw that remark unreservedly about Paddy. <laughs> but, I mean, that is actually what I said at the time. I was in more militant mood then. It's wholly untrue. He'd have understood it perfectly well. Um, but it was said to illustrate the fact that it is actually very difficult without friendly outlets to carry your story on to actually to get a prime ministerial story or a government story actually out to the 30 million largely non-political people but do you think who Cameron vote in this country. Well, I'm now coming to David Cameron. I hope he will. I mean, he's a, I think he's a little more hawkish than I have. I think he's a much better media performer than I ever was. Um, I think that is certainly true of David Cameron. And I actually think David Cameron has some political stardust that is becoming increasingly apparent. And I think there are many parts of the press that are warming to the fact that... Um, this government has been there a long time, to pick up your point. I think there is a feeling for change amongst some people, not necessarily definitive, but there is a feeling for change. And here is a very attractive uh, political package who I think will be able to capitalise on that. So I'm a strong supporter of uh, David. If you mean, do I agree with every single thing he did? I don't know any senior politician who has ever agreed in all history with everything that any other senior politician did. But am I a David Cameron supporter? Yes, I am. Do I think he is going to be Prime Minister one day? Yes, I do. Do next I think time? it might be the next election? I think it very well might be. And uh, insofar as I can help from beyond politics, for I am now beyond politics, and I'm not going back into politics, uh, from beyond politics, insofar as I can help, I will do so. In the front here. John Muir, um, speaking from your position uh, beyond politics, John... Should Britain uh, join the euro, and could we also have some <coughs> ideas from you about how you feel about the euro now that it's now nearly doubled in size? Uh, yes. Since, since, you were, since you were there, since you were there. said once that we should be at the heart of Europe. What mm. does that mean? Now? Yes, uh, that was totally misinterpreted as to what I meant by that. Um, should we go into the euro? I don't think so. I don't think we're on the same economic cycle as our European partners. And I don't think the British political body politic would like to subordinate the degree of political decision-making that would be necessary if we actually joined the euro. So would I join the euro? No, I wouldn't. I heard Gordon Brown say in the Today programme about a week ago that he had kept Britain out of the euro. And I think insofar as he has neglected to join it, I think he has been, I think he has been right. Um, but unless my memory is fading with age... It was me who actually negotiated the opt-out from joining the euro at Maastricht. And again, unless my memory is fading with age, it was actually me who offered the referendum on a euro if we were ever going to go into the euro and force Tony Blair, because he had no political choice, 
but to say exactly the same thing. So it's another of Gordon's letters that's gone astray in this wretched uh, post of ours. <laughs> now, now, what about uh, Europe now? I think Europe has fundamentally changed its character in a number of ways, but most obviously with the enlargement from 15 nations to 27 and soon a few more. You are going to find it is becoming a much wider and richer free trade area. For example, all those new Central and Eastern European nations, when you add their economies together, it's bigger than China. Now consider that. So as a free trade area, uh, it is now much bigger. And uh, that, I think, is very, very attractive for us. Secondly, it provides Britain with allies in Europe that Margaret Thatcher never had and that I never had. We were usually battling a pretty lonely road. Britain now has allies across uh, many parts of Europe. The other significant change is because um, it is now a much wider Europe, it is going to be very difficult indeed to make it a much deeper Europe, much more difficult to integrate politically than ever it was uh, before. And uh, I think that, from Britain's point of view, is quite an attractive. It's very much not to the taste of Germany and France and some other nations. But from the point of view of the British political scene, it is a very attractive difference. So I think we should certainly look at uh, deepening the economic relationship with our European partners as much as we can. And that does mean a certain amount of decision-making taken centrally. It does mean that. Um, for example, if we didn't work with a slightly different point... But if we didn't work with our European partners on defence, we would, within a few years, become wholly a client state of the United States. Now, we are very close allies. They are our closest allies. But it isn't attractive to have one supplier. So I think there's a great deal that still can be done with Europe. On environment, clearly we have to work with them. But I think now we will not go into the euro, and I personally would not go into the euro. And I think we are in a much stronger position than we have ever been before to resist that deepening that would impinge upon the British political instinct in the way that was pushed so firmly in the early 90s from our continental partners. Um, the person who looks like Trevor Kavanagh but isn't in the front here. Who are you? Can you, well, those of you who didn't hear up the talk, because I don't think you were on mic, he was saying uh, right. the, the failure of anyone to resign over ERM, did that set a precedent, which is, means that nobody now resigns over everything, anything? Well, I don't think so, because I seem to think quite a few ministers resigned after that uh, during the <laughs> 1992 to 97 position, so I'm not sure it gave up the principle of resignation. Yes, but they didn't resign even I do think the principle, I do think the principle of resignation is a good one. And as I said earlier, perhaps I should have resigned over Black Wednesday. I don't think Lamont should have done because I had been the Chancellor who went in and I was the Prime Minister at the time. So I, I thought if anybody should resign, I thought it should have been me. And I freely confess I'm not sure whether I should have done or not. As to whether I think the principle of resignation for policy errors generally is right, I think it is. And I think it is uh, attractive uh, where, that, uh, where that happens. I think sometimes in the past it was carried to absurd lengths where 
people resigned for quite silly things that patently were no real responsibility of them, of the, of the person who resigned, except technically. But we swung too far in the other direction. I don't think it's the only slippage in the way government has been conducted. Uh, we didn't talk tonight about the politicization of the civil service or a range of other things, but we well uh, might have done. And I think if we are going to look at the health of our body politic, there are quite a few series of changes that need to be made to the powers of the House of Lords, to uh, maybe even the size of the House of Commons, to the nature of the civil service, a whole range of things that I promise you I will be suggesting uh, to David Cameron what do you mean uh, the nature the of the civil election. service? Hmm? What do you mean the nature of the civil service? Well, I think we should have a civil service act. I think when Nigel Wicks recommended a civil service act some time ago, Nigel Wicks, for those who don't know it, is a very distinguished former Treasury civil servant, now retired, who headed a committee, the Wicks Committee, who looked at the question of whether there should be a civil service act to enshrine the independence of the civil service. I passionately believe that there should. I think there should be um, a, an independent civil service act. And I'm absolutely convinced that you have to end this politicization of the government information service. The day the government, the civil servants who were the government information officers were sacked or removed from number 10 and many of the departments of state and replaced by political appointees at, I may say, sometimes twice or three times the salary uh, was a black day for the reputation of British government. There was a time if the number 10 spokesman said something, an independent civil servant like the uh, three civil servants I had who were press secretaries, I think the world may not have liked what they said, but they implicitly and instinctively believed what they said. Well, I'm afraid when you hear some things from number 10 these days, if you hear that Friday follows Thursday, you would be wise to check the calendar. And I think you have to change that. I'm going to take two more questions. The gentleman in white shirt and braces up there and then the gentleman in the um, dark blue tie in the front. Yeah, hello, my name's Joe Ross. Um, I'd like to ask Sir John, um, how did he get on with uh, Douglas Hurd and Michael Heseltine, who he beat for the, uh, in the leadership contest, both of whom had, he would probably concede, slightly more experience than him? No, no, they had a lot more experience than me. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I had a very good relationship with them. I never had any difficulty with... I had uh, one policy dispute where Douglas... You could always tell when Douglas Heard was annoyed uh, because he would, uh, he would hold his keys and when he began rattling his keys and throwing them up and down, up and down you knew you'd reached the limit of your negotiating position with Douglas. <laughs> it was a, a piece of body watching that he never understood, uh, but it was an absolute giveaway. Um, I always found both of them uh, totally loyal and I had no difficulty in working with them at all. Both of them were uh, infinitely more experienced than I was at the time of the election. And um, I think the real danger was whether the Conservative Party, after the traumatic events of Margaret Thatcher's departure, would have held together. And I think I was best placed to hold it together at that time, though we paid a price for it later. And, um, but as to my relationship with Douglas and Michael, that was excellent. Um, the fact that I put Michael in the cabinet and abolished the poll tax straight away did cause great, uh, great uh, frictions with some people in the parliamentary party um, and was the start of many of the difficulties we subsequently faced. But Michael got 150 or so votes. Of course he should have been in the cabinet. 
And of course he was very able, and in my judgment, a very great asset to the government. And as for the poll tax, it was plain that it had to go. But that, that piece of real politic caused great friction almost from the day that I walked through the door at Downing Street. Uh, Free this must be the last one. Tom Windsor. Have you any regrets about privatizing the railway? <laughs> um, I have one regret about privatizing the railway. Um, let, let me preface that by saying fond memories have forgotten how absolutely atrocious the nationalized railway was and how little investment there was in the nationalized railway and had been for a very long time. Romantics tend to sweep that, those inconvenient truths to one side. Yes, I do have one regret about privatizing the railway. My instinct was to privatize it, not as we did with the separation of uh, rail and uh, track. Uh, it was to privatize it regionally. That was my first instinct. And that is what we originally set out to do. And we were given very strong advice from within the industry and from within the Treasury that if we did that, all the investment would then go into the rolling stock and not into the railway itself, which was crucial for safety. That was the key point. And that was why we eventually privatized it the way we did. Whether that was right, it's difficult to say. People, when something becomes unpopular, and of course, pretty soon after we got to government with the gov Labour Party, uh, we left government with the Labour Party's opposition to privatization, you would think privatizing the railway was akin to slaughtering the firstborn. And so there were very few people who were actually looking at it rationally. Uh, I still think that a privately run railway will get more investment than a nationally state railway will ever get. And without the investment, we won't have the money put into safety and we won't have the money put into the rolling stock. That raises the second question of whether the regime that has been established to regulate is good enough to ensure that those two things happen. But there I think you should look not at the question of privatization, but at the nature of the regulatory system. Right, well thank you very much. We really could go on for hours, I know, because there are lots more questions here, but I just would like to thank Sir John personally and then hand over to uh, Richard Holm to thank the LSE for letting us stage this event <coughs> here. It would be nice to go on further. I'm happy to. <laughs> well, I think, I suspect we've got other demands. Yes, You've got other true, demands. Yes. Well, I suppose I should say it's my very pleasant job to uh, thank uh, Eleanor and Sir John, but uh, it's not really a very pleasant job because, as far as I'm concerned, this could go on all night. I think it's been the most wonderful and engrossing conversation. Uh, I dare say that when we... Um, read the transcript, we'll find it's a source for analysts and political scientists and political commentators for years. I knew I shouldn't have come. A lot of <laughs> <laughs> But um, before I thank uh, our two participants, I really should say on behalf of the Hansard Society, a big thank you to our partners at LSE. I don't know where Howard Davis is, but there you are, Howard. We take a lot of pleasure at the Hansard Society in being a long-standing partner with you as many people in this audience know, the Hansard Society is simultaneously a think tank for Parliament, an NGO for Parliament, uh, and at the same time, a bridge between Parliament and the public to try and make sure that Parliament is better understood. And an occasion like this, 
uh, is very much at the heart of our mission. That's not to say it hasn't been a very special occasion. I remember when I approached um, John Major at Ditchley Park, I think it was about 18 months ago, John. About the, the pleasure of that conversation was, first of all, he agreed to do it. But secondly, between us, we conceived this idea that it would work best not as just another pot-boiling speech, but as a conversation. And I think it has worked brilliantly in that respect. And a lot of that has to do not just with our star, but with uh, Eleanor Goodman, who's one of our trustees at the Hansard Society. Um, Eleanor ha has uh, stopped being a political journalist, although she still does a bit of moonlighting, but she's become the sort of voice of rural England. And I know that uh, for, her, for her to do something which doesn't involve inspecting silo pits or Goodness. going around rural housing is a great treat. So we've given you a treat this evening, and you've given us one as well. It's good to see you back on the political beat, Eleanor, and thank you for a very sensitive and a very interesting interview but of course the main thanks should go to Sir John uh, it's extraordinary how when people leave office they either like good wines mature and become vintage or, or they go sour and, uh, <laughs> and in his case the vintage just gets better and better and all the qualities that we remember of him in office, uh, even those of us who were his political opponents, but the very attractive qualities he brought to the prime ministership and to political leadership, the humour, the candour, the directness, the total lack of pomposity, uh, and the ability to say quite profound things in a very accessible way, all been on display this evening. And I can't thank him too warmly. It's been an absolute treat. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.